and it is my duty because this uh, might be the, the inner chronicle of what we are and we have to articulate ourselves, otherwise we would be cows in the field. Hello everyone, welcome to Cows in the Field. This is another movie podcast. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm Laura. Today we wanted to bring you a, a series of five doubleheader uh, recommendations. Um, these are all streaming on either Netflix or Amazon Prime. And there are some movies that I think will be maybe fun for, for people to, to check out while you're maybe you're cooped up in the quarantine. Some quarantine wrecks for you. Yep. We're going to kick it off with the first double feature. Double feature, which we call High and Low. And the first movie of High and Low is a 1999 American film by Martin Scorsese called Bringing Out the Dead. Come on, John. The city's burning. Um, that uh, pairs uh, Scorsese and his, uh, I guess, semi-frequent collaborator, Paul Schrader, who wrote Mm it, Mm -hmm. uh, also wrote Taxi Driver, and um, starring Nicolas Cage as a sort of wild, strung-out... Exhausted. Exhausted um, paramedic. And uh, he, it's got uh, Patricia Arquette as a... I think her father ends up in the hospital uh, carried for by a cage um and it takes place in manhattan in the in the 90s uh in in hell's kitchen i think in particular and uh it's the wild ride it's it's sort of the film equivalent of being strung out on some kind of like uppers and that's why this for us is the high movie of the high and low yep um we watched this uh, this over the summer when we were doing our Nicolas Cage uh, marathon and Rage uh, Cage twenty nineteen is what we called it. Yeah, and this was this movie was high on my Cage list. I really mm-hmm. liked it. It's it's high on my Scorsese list too. I think it's somewhat overlooked as far as the Scorsese, you know, filmography. I think it gets overlooked in favor of sort of flashier movies. And yeah, before we were looking for Cage movies to watch, I hadn't heard of it. Yeah, so so Cage is a paramedic. He drives around an ambulance and goes and picks up drug addicts and takes them to get you know methadone and stuff and um it's uh it's a real uh, shot of adrenaline for you in case you're looking for that and also in case you want to get a sense of what it's like to be on the front lines of the COVID-19 pandemic <laughs> um this no I'm, I have no idea if it's anything like that but uh anyway it's this is a fun ride and it's and one the other thing I will say about this movie and about I think most of the movies we're going to recommend today uh, relatively short runtime. Uh, it's just a two hour for for Scorsese. This is a short movie. This is right. a two hour movie. Scorsese usually clocking in around three hours. Bloated movies are his calling card, and this one's a tight two for him. And if you really want to get into what New York was in a certain period of time, uh, this would have been the late eighties or early nineties. It's a nice little window into at least. The Manhattan that really doesn't exist anymore, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's Manhattan is it's become this like cleaned up, bougie. It's too expensive for any of these people to live there anymore. I believe it's based on a book. So it's based on a book, yes, by an actual paramedic. Um, 
and um, sorry, it's based on a novel about some actual paramedic. Okay. So perhaps it's a dramatization of his life. Okay. I don't know. But uh, who cares? It's wild. I mean, it's almost like one of these things where it doesn't really matter if it's true or false. If there's something that about it that's, it you know, it does approach this kind of Herzogian ecstatic truth where you get this sense of like, you don't really care whether this these things really happen. You're just like sort of like, I feel the feeling of what it would be like to mm-hmm. be in this experience and to go through this and to be completely sleep deprived and do these long shifts. And then by the end of the movie, Cage is, he's looking pretty pretty frazzled i mean he's looking frazzled in the first scene of the movie yeah and um, it just gets worse yeah and small tidbit about cage apparently he when he did this movie he was flying back and forth across the country um i think because he was going through a divorce or something anyway mm-hmm. he was himself basically completely jet lagged th- throughout the entire shoot sociology uh professor gorfine please he's in a lecture now can i take a message uh yeah could you could you just tell him uh, don't worry, Lewin has the cat. Lewin is the cat. No, Lewin has the cat. I'm Lewin, I have his cat. Well, I had a man, strong and tall. The next movie that is our, our low to the high, we need to come down from the adrenaline rush that was bringing out the dead. Uh, my choice is Inside Lewin Davis, which is available on Amazon Prime. Um, I think of it as sort of an underappreciated masterpiece by two men who are themselves masterpiece machines, the Coen brothers. Um, I don't think anything is underappreciated or, you know, goes completely under the radar when it's made by by the Coen brothers. But of their filmography, it's one of my absolute favorites. And I feel like a lot of people haven't seen it. So I wanted to put it on here and recommend uh, that you check it out because I think it's it's really beautiful. It also, like Bringing Out the Dead, takes place in New York and in a very specific time uh, in the early 60s, I believe, in Greenwich Village. Uh, and it's about Lewin Davis, who is a country singer, country, well, rather, a folk singer, rather, uh, who is kind of stuck in a rut in his life. Um, the cyclical nature of his days and his sort of constant struggle for just survival feel a little bit like the cyclicalness of Nicolas Cage's character in Bringing Out the Dead. You know, he wakes up and he, he sort of begs his boss to fire him every morning, every yeah, Cage, evening. Cage. Cage does. Yeah, thank you. Uh, and uh, he still has to go out there and and, and face it all over again. Lewin Davis is, is facing a lot more mundane <laughs> uh, struggles. Um day to day but he's sort of just floating through life not really he's lost his purpose he's lost his aim and i think it's a really beautiful movie i think i mean one thing that lewin davis that's great about it is it's i feel like it's a movie about a guy you know as you pointed out he's stuck in a rut he's doing the same things over and over again he's he's um falling into the same traps but he's a guy much like cage's character in bringing out the dead who really aspires to sort of escape this uh this drudgery um he has a plan his plan is to become a famous folk singer right um but he doesn't really have exactly what it takes right he's not bob dylan he's not you know he doesn't have the depth of a true poet he's just a normal person who's struggling through and caught up in this you know this moment of time um and uh, yeah, so I think it's a nice movie to to sort of 
pick up on the, some of the themes of bringing out the dead, but do it in a much calmer and more tranquil, yeah. meditative way. I mean, they, both of our protagonists, I think, are really tired. <laughs> and, and that's true. Lewin Davis yeah. maybe had that fire, had that hustle once that could have made him great, but he's lost his singing partner and um, he's depressed and just exhausted, I think, um, from just from trying so hard for so long. And it now he's kind of just a bit of a zombie moving mm-hmm. through his he's life. He's just sort of going through things. Going I mean, they're the both, that's good. They're, they're both sort of zombies going through the motions of yeah. living and questioning why it is that they're doing what they're doing and wondering if there there's something else to it all. Mm-hmm. Um, I think about with these movies too, a little bit bi- uh, biographically uh, in that my great aunt Lois, who lived in New York for many, 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 many years, I think moved to Greenwich Village during this time. And so I, I kind of think about this mo- inside Lewin Davis is like my aunt Lois's time, the way she thinks. I I always felt like she sort of still looked at New York in the same way. She lived right by Washington Square Park. So this was really like her neighborhood. Um, and I think how she got introduced to New York and how she always kind of saw New York. And then my dad was a resident in um, in the late 80s, not the early 90s, late 80s in New York. And the stories that he tells in like the halls of Bellevue uh, reminded me of bringing out the dead. So they, I feel like I have family connections in some way, in my mind to both yeah, these movies. Totally. So we're going to introduce the second double feature now, which is the theme of this double feature is paranoia. Wadsworth, am I right in thinking there is nobody else in this house? No. Then there is someone else in this house. No, sorry. I said no meaning yes. No meaning yes? Look, I want a straight answer. Is there someone else or isn't there yes or no? Um, no. No, there is or no, there isn't? Yes. Please! If you're interested in some silly, silly fun, I recommend the movie Clue, which is available on Amazon Prime. It is based off the classic board game with a little bit of Agatha Christie thrown in. It's very close to the plot of And Then There Were None. Um, I discovered this movie in the fifth grade. I can remember it exactly, but basically it blew my mind because I was at the time really, really excited about Agatha Christie and reading every murder mystery novel I could get my hands on at the time. And I rented this movie from Blockbuster. I think it was one of those just like pick it off the shelf because the cover looked cool. And I was just blown away because it was basically like my PBS murder mystery theater, but like it had jokes. (laughs) (laughs) I was so excited. Yeah. It's so silly, but I still love it so much. Um, And I think part of the reason that I love it is because there are a few actors in this movie that go really hard, specifically Madeline Kahn. She's amazing. Some of the sillier jokes may not hold up if you're not in the fifth grade. um, But I think Madeline Kahn's commitment to being over the top and and Tim Curry's commitment to being over the top is evergreen and incredibly fun. at one point, apparently it was an ad lib. Madeline Kahn is supposed to just describe how much she hates somebody. And it turns into her <laughs> sing-songy flames, flames on the side of my face, burning, heaving breath, heaving. It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> That's my really bad impression of I it. I mean, Clue is, yeah, Clue is, is a very silly movie. If you're not into silly movies, it might not be for you. But if you're looking for a kind of reprieve from everything. I think a lot of people. Which you might want if you, you know, not if you're me, but if you are, you know, anyone else, you might want a reprieve from the current state of things. So hard on my choices. You're looking, you know, it's, it's quite fun. And I mean, I think it's one of those movies that 
um, it's like a cut above what you would think, right? What you would you would expect, right, from a movie about a board game that like pro- presumably people were like at the time thought like what a joke. And yeah, yet, it didn't do well at the time. People thought it was dumb, and it kind of slowly built a bit of a, a cult following. I think because of the couple of actors that really brought their A game. But we should say a little bit about why we think this fits into the theme of paranoia. Yes. Yeah, so under so it takes place in the 50s and there is a running theme throughout it about the FBI, about the House of Un-American Activities. Um, there is a joke about how at one point J. Edgar Hoover calls and um, there's a joke about Hoover is on, every, is on everybody's phone. At the time, I didn't understand that joke and thought they were talking about vacuum cleaners. <laughs> when I was in the fifth grade, I didn't get it. Um, but there are characters who might be communist or is communism a red flag? But what's certain is that everybody is like very concerned about who is watching who, who has secret photographs of whom. Right. Um, blackmail is Blackmail like this, is, is the exactly the yeah. instigating um, sort of key uh, part of this movie. Uh, so that is why it falls into our paranoia double feature. Now, look, don't get involved in this, Mr. Cole. Those tapes are dangerous. You are, you know what I mean. Someone may get hurt. The second hit on the double feature of Paranoia is, um, I think, a mostly, I, I really think a mostly forgotten masterpiece by Francis Ford Coppola called mm-hmm. The Conversation, which came out in 1974, which was the exact same year that Godfather Part Two came out, which is that's crazy, mind blowing. That's some Spielberg stuff, and was completely, of course, overshadowed by Godfather Part Two, right? Um, and I think unfairly so because I think this movie is uh, is incredible. So this is a movie about a guy played by G- Gene Hackman who he's basically just a surveillance expert. So he's just like a hired gun who goes out and like uh, records people surreptitiously, and um, he records a conversation. And as he's editing the the audio together to send off to the client, he hears something which makes him think that the client may be trying to kill these people. And that really disturbs him. And he then starts to get involved, uh, which he normally wouldn't because he's a very private guy being someone who bugs people for life, as you would imagine. Um, And this sort of spirals out of control and he begins to think that maybe they're after him and... Uh, so Hackman is just incredible in this movie, and it's it's just a fun movie of just mounting paranoia, just like at every step of this movie. He already starts at like a seven on the paranoia scale, and he basically goes to like 10 plus by the end of the movie of just completely losing his mind. Um, and I have to say, I think, you know, I think Coppola made four incredible movies, and this is one of them for for sure. And it's it's... You know, he made movies that are bigger and more ostentatious and in certain respects, larger achievements cinematically. But I feel like this is a movie that I keep coming back to. It's a really enjoyable movie. It's super rewatchable. Um, And I will say that one of the key plot points turns on a feature of linguistic semantics that um, about focal stress that I think is really cool. So um that's just a tidbit for any academics listening who might be intrigued by that point. But the, that is like a crucial plot point. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, it's a great movie. I'm not going to say anything bad about your picks. It, but 
You love this movie. I know. So it's, I picked, no, I I'm just salty because that, you're down on Clue. I only picked movies that I thought you would like too. No, actually, that's not true. You're going to hate on some of my movies later. So we'll I'll just get, have less to say about certain ones coming we'll up. We'll get there. Um, do you want to introduce the next category? So our next double header, uh, the theme is Families Falling Apart. And for my pick, I picked the 2018 movie uh, Suspiria. Justin, will you help me with the with the pronunciation of Luca's last name? Oh, Guadagnino. Thank you, Luca, Luca Guadagnino. His 2018 movie Suspiria, which is his follow up to Call Me by Your Name, it hit a couple of buckets for me. I mean, much like Clue hitting the the Agatha Christie bucket and and the jokes bucket for me in fifth grade, this movie is both a horror movie which I love, and a dance movie, which I also love. I will watch almost any dance movie. So I was already sold before I got there. Um, But it's actually, I liked it better than Call Me By Your Name. It's visually sumptuous. It has an incredible soundtrack by Tom York. The dance the dance choreography is incredible. Um, And it's very spooky and very weird. And long. <laughs> it's not. This is the. This is the. Uh, this one is the exception to our runtime. So. It has. It's a pretty long runtime. There's yeah. a lot packed into it, but I think it's worth it. I thought about it for a long time afterwards, and um, I, I thought it was really fantastic. I mean, one pitch for this movie is that there's a there's a there's a dance murder scene. Yes. Okay. There's a dance murder scene. Uh, there's a lot of blood. So much blood. <laughs> like an absurd amount of blood. Um, there is Tilda Swinton. Tilda Swinton. Tilda There's Swinton. a lot of Tilda Swinton. A lot of Tilda. That's all I'll say about that. Um, and it's the, why do we why do we think of this one as families falling apart? Well, this is a movie about a, a an adoptive family of of a dance troupe and who are effectively going through a divorce. Uh, they are there are two leaders who are fighting over the control of the family, and the children of the family have to choose. And this is mirrored in the mil- the film is set in. Um, post and whatever 70s like post-war um berlin which is divided into east and west berlin and there is this you know division of the uh, you know of the state that mirrors the division of the of the family that, that they're breaking up and you know it's like there's a character who crosses the wall periodically to like see his deceased wife and you know that's a lot like children being shuffled back and forth from mother to father in a yep. divorce situation. Yep. Um, yep. The dancers themselves are kind of vying for the attention of the various dance instructors, but particularly Mother Blanc. Um, there's a competition because everybody wants to be the lead dancer. So there's a competition between the girls and sort of fraught friendships um, as Ma- Mother Blanc bestows her sort of favor upon um, Dakota's uh character uh much like oftentimes unfortunately what happens in divorce is the kids sort of vie for their parents attention or perhaps mm-hmm. gravitate towards one or the other which perhaps sets you up right and it's also a coming <laughs> of age story which we, i guess we could have made this theme coming of age as well um mm-hmm. if we wanted um um but yeah i mean i think it's about families and about the children and of divorce effectively and how that how they sort of manage in that navigate navigate in that scenario of course the ending of this movie i won't give anything away but it doesn't it's it's sort of 
yeah, the kids get, you know, they figure it out. <laughs> I'll just say that it gets, it gets worked out. Um, they don't have to choose, uh, so to speak. Uh, so yeah, it's a great movie. And, and, um, you, and so I don't want to like out you, but I mean, like I've seen the original Suspiria. I'm actually not super high on the original Suspiria. The You said you don't want to out me because I haven't seen right. the OG. Right. But, yeah. but I mean, like I actually, that's kind of my fault more than you. I mean, you've been interested in seeing it and I, I was just like, I, I just don't, it, it doesn't resonate for me. Um, I don't know. I think I just haven't seen enough like Giallo films or whatever that I don't know. But the other movie in this category, again, remember the category is Families Falling Apart, is uh, actually one of my favorite movies of all time, The yep. Squid and the Whale. Yeah. Um, Noah Baumbach. It's his second movie, um, 2005. I wish that I was a star. I'm moving in. You're dark in a Come deep on. blue sky. Well, you have to try. It's no fun for me if you don't try. I want to be a tennis pro like Ivan. Oh, come on. You don't want to be a tennis pro. Why not? It's not serious. I mean, McEnroe. Borg is an artist. It's like dance. Connors has a brutish brilliance, but at Ivan's level, Ivan is fine, but he's not a serious guy. He's a Philistine. What's a Philistine? It's a guy who doesn't care about books or interesting films and things. Your mother's brother, Ned, is also a Philistine. Then I'm a Philistine. No, you're interested in books and things. You liked The Wild Child when we saw it. Lots of people like that movie. No, I'm a Philistine. This is a movie about a family that's falling apart. Like, literally, this is very obviously a movie about divorce um, based on his, you know, in, in ways based on his own experience being a child of divorce. Feels very autobiographical. Everything Noah Baumbach does feels autobiographical. <laughs> but yeah, this yeah. one really feels autobiographical. Um, you know, there's uh, uh, Laura Linney and... Um, and Jeff Daniels are, are an academic couple who are getting divorced. They have two kids. Um, and um, uh, they're both English professors uh, living in Brooklyn in the 80s. Um, and it's just, I think it's the fun, I think it's one of the funniest movies ever made. <laughs> I just, I find it's, I find everything Jeff Daniels says in this movie absolutely hilarious. He's such a narcissistic um, professor. And, um, um, but then I tell people, I'm like, man, this movie is hilarious. Like, it's like, abs it's just like a laugh riot. And then they watch it and they're like, what? That movie is like a downer. Yeah. You sell it like it's a Will Ferrell movie. Yeah. You're not doing it right. It's not that funny. No, it's, it's funny, but it's not that funny. There's a lot of path pathos. And if you are a child of divorce, like this might give you a tummy ache. It could be triggering if you're, if, if, if you've been through divorce, but, but it's also hilarious. So, you know, <laughs> trade off. Uh, obviously I had to include this. I mean, it's streaming on Prime, so like, no excuse. It's it's like an eighty. How many? How it's a tight movie this? too. It's That's how you 80, always sell it. It's eighty-one minutes. It's not even an hour and a half. This movie, you can like, everyone's all watching these streaming shows and stuff. One episode of a streaming show plus a few minutes, and you've got through uh, Squid and the Whale, and it's just it it you'll reap dividends uh, from this movie. It's so you sell this movie hard. It's so wonderful. Yeah. It used to be like Justin's litmus test for friendship. There was we, he showed this to me. I don't know, like weeks into us dating, I feel like there was a lot of pressure on me to like this movie. I do like this movie. I don't know that I <laughs> love it like you love it, but I do like it. I will say though, but if you want to laugh and you don't want to get a tummy ache. Clue is funny too. Yeah, Clue. Yeah, Clue kidding. is funny and then kind of this is this this is really the difference between us though because Clue is funny in this kind of silly yeah. slapstick way. Yeah. This movie is funny in in the sense that these are like 
pretty horrible people saying pretty horrible things, but it's hilarious that they're saying these things without any like self, they're not doing it self-consciously. Yeah. You do also, Justin and I joke about the various categories of movies that he likes. And one is, I call the category of people saying the worst things they've ever said to one another, uh, which is what a lot of Bergman movies fall into. Uh, This movie's not quite that intense, but there is, you know, there are some people saying some not nice things to each other in this movie. You also love when people get irrationally angry. And there's a lot. I love irrational anger. That's one of my favorite things. That's what that whole hard to beat your father scene really pulls on for you. Yeah, this movie, man. And, and, you know, Baumbach, I mean, you know, Baumbach, you you know him from Marriage Story. He did Marriage Story this year and stuff. But this movie, to me, has never been beat as far as Baumbach movies. No, it's definitely his peak. It's the best I've seen from him. And it made me think I loved Baumbach more than I think I really do as a director because I love this movie so much. But other Baumbach movies haven't. Mm-hmm. Haven't really held up mm-hmm. to the standard of this one. Here we are, born to be kings. We're the princes of the universe. Here we belong. This is now our fourth uh, category. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this one we call The Rules of the Universe. Now, these are movies where. They are fantasy movies in a way where there are strictly prescribed rules in the universe that are explicitly laid out in the movie where some character explicitly tells another character, here are the rules. And that other character may or may not believe them, but those rules are for sure have to be followed. Um, And Laura has the first of the two, I guess. What a charming boy. Isn't he? Yes, very. How did his father die? Car crash, driving home. Smashed into a pole, killed instantly. How long have you known him? Quite some time. He was a patient of mine, years ago. Did you go to the funeral? I did go, yes. Why didn't I go with you? I think I told you about it, but you were busy or something. Uh, so mine is a Yorgos film, Yorgos Lanthimos, his movie from 2017 called Killing of a Sacred Deer. Um, you may have seen The Favorite. That one got a lot of attention. I liked Killing of a Sacred Deer perhaps even more. Um, no, I'm not going to say perhaps. I liked it more. Um, it has Nicole Kidman and Colin Farrell. And it's a story of a doctor who has kind of a strange relationship with a young boy who we find out um, his father died on the operating table of Colin Farrell's uh, Colin Farrell's uh, operating table. And um, they kind of have an uneasy sort of friendship because I think Colin Farrell feels a little bit guilty mm-hmm. about possibly killing his his uh, his father. And then things take a turn and his family members start getting sick. Yeah. Right. I right. don't want to give too much away. No, we don't want to go further than that, but that's, yeah. that's the... Yeah. yeah, and then the rules are explained. The rules are explained. <laughs> the rules are yes, explained. Yes, exactly. And all of a sudden, the sort of the world goes sideways. It starts off as just a movie that seems really grounded, and mm-hmm. then um, some supernatural, perhaps supernatural elements come into play. It's, yeah, it's worth mentioning that it is, you know, in a way, loosely based off of a the Greek tragedy Iphigenia at Aulis by Euripides. Okay. And... There is a sense in which, yes, it is, and a sense in which, no, it's not. But I think it's interesting to just, I mean, that the, the tragedy is, rep, is referenced in the, in the movie explicitly, but mm-hmm. 
you know, and it's clear there are elements of the story that are connecting the two. But um, so that could be an in if you're interested in Greek tragedy. One one thing to to kind of to kind of orient yourself in this universe. But I, the way I think of it, and I know we disagree on this, but the way I think of it is that it's Yorgos Lanthimos's horror film. Mm-hmm. It's his it's his foray into the horror genre. But I know you have a different take on that. I just don't think it's horror because we were we were arguing on whether or not I have two horror movies on my on my list or just one because I. I've, I think Suspiria is firmly in the horror category, and I find this to be more of a suspense or a thriller. I mean, another way to disagree with me on this is that every film Yorgos Lanthimos makes is a horror film. But I think this is the one that hews closest to the genre conventions of horror. I mean, Dogtooth is a a horror film in the sense of it's a movie about like a totalitarian dictatorship and the the horror of living under a dictator. Um, But it just doesn't play like a horror film. Whereas this movie plays, I feel like it plays very much like it's just the mounting dread as Colin Farrell slowly realizes what is been, what he was told, right. As, as everything is kind of falling into place. It's a really slow burn. And what I like about it, Dog Tooth is the first movie that we watched by Yorgos Lanthimos, and it is a completely insane movie. Uh, and the world is bizarre from jump. Like the first scene you watch is is very strange. Um, and it just gets weirder and weirder from there and very unsettling. This movie is really unsettling too, but it's, but it is grounded in the world that you recognize and that makes it perhaps more horrific. Yeah, I see. Okay. That's an interesting, yeah, that's an interesting point. Yeah. I mean, it's slowly, it, it feels like the gra- like ground is grip. like shifting underneath yeah. you in a way that like the favorite is in its own alternate reality. Dogtooth is in its own really yeah. alternate reality. The lobster is completely in its own yeah. obst- <laughs> alternate reality. Right. Yeah. But you start off this movie thinking you're in the world you recognize. And mm-hmm. then you find out that the rules are yeah, different rules than, what, are you different. Thought, than yeah. what you thought. Yeah. And Colin Farrell is just as shocked as you are <laughs> with that, um, with that revelation. Yeah. Okay, so Killing a Sacred Deer rules, the great rules. movie. Um, <laughs> my pick on this category is uh, a 1986 straight-up fantasy called Highlander. <laughs> Highlander is this. This is like a bunch of people who are called Highlanders, I guess. Or I don't know. Anyway, I'm not sure if they're called Highlanders. This guy's just called the Highlander because he's a, a Scot- he's Scottish. Do you know if the TV show The Highlander is based? I have no idea what the t- I don't. The TV show. I set that aside. <laughs> I think it is based on it, but, but well, I'm just gonna reference that. Maybe people will know what Highlanders are because they watch the TV show. I actually don't think. I think he Completely is just separate. a high. He is just called Highlander. That's okay. like his name is the Highlander. Okay. But I don't think that's the name of these people that he is. Anyway, okay. so he's a immortal being who the rules of this universe are for these chosen immortal beings. They have to they have to like eventually kill each other off 
and they're always saying there can be only one. So they're always just like, there can be only one. And then they like duel with swords and then one of them gets killed. And then that one, like the other one, like zaps his energy and maybe becomes more powerful or something. I, I don't, I mean, who knows, right? But like, that's the rule. The rule is there can be only one. These guys are locked in this like infinite conflict where they're just winnowing each other down slowly. Um, and it just rules. I mean, this movie is just, it's its steeped in the 80s. Um, the soundtrack's by Queen, as I mentioned. And it just, it's a movie that is like, dripping with style and energy and it, it cross cuts with his his sort of um growing up uh, and tutelage under sean connery as a scotsman um because he says he's he was like a scottish guy that uh, christopher lambert plays the highlander and um and you know so it sort of cuts back to like medieval scotland and then back to present day new york i think is where he is mm-hmm. and it just rocks and the guy there's this guy the the kurgan what's his name yeah, the Kurgan, who's the guy, Clancy Brown, who plays uh, SpongeBob SquarePants' friend, Mr. Krabs. Boss. Boss? Yeah. Okay, so I don't know. I actually never saw this show. Uh, <laughs> anyway, and he's just, this guy is just looks like he's just a huge menacing dude. And um, and he's got a sword that he, he carries around in a briefcase that he can, like, put together, like, Legos, sort of. And it's so cool, man. And I don't know. I just... This is a fun movie. It's uh, it's it's not that long. If you just want to zone out and watch a fun movie with some dudes slashing swords to Queen, this is your movie, Highlander. So the last category is um, how to win friends and influence people. So this is our political camp. We can think of it that way. It's our political um, okay. uh, uh, category. And... Um, Actually, I'll go first. Why not, right? You've been going first. Whatever. All right. So so my <laughs> movie on wait. this, my movie here is, uh, I think, streaming on Amazon. And it is um, the, it is a movie by the guy who is basically the namesake of this podcast, um, Werner Herzog. And the movie is Aguirre, Wrath of God. Anyone who even thinks about deserting this mission will be cut up into 98 pieces. Those pieces will be stamped on until what is left can be used only to paint walls. 1972, a movie about a bunch of uh, Spanish uh, conquistadors who are going to find the lost city of gold, El Dorado. (laughs) And... It's um, it's kind of it's like a hallucinatory masterpiece. It basically did what Coppola did in Apocalypse Now. Uh, he just already did it. He just did it a couple of years before. Mm-hmm. And um, and there's some things that I think Coppola no- does some nods to it. Um, and um, yeah, there's a lot of just floating down a river in a raft with, but it's just a, a raft that's just getting more and more deconstructed and yeah, it, things are getting worse and worse and worse. Yeah, everything's going bad. And, <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's like, there's just surreal stuff happening constantly in this movie. Mm-hmm. It's just wonderful. Like the, the first shot of the movie is a, uh, a sort of a slow zoom into a mountain that's like shrouded in in you know mist and fog and as they you know you're kind of zooming in and then you see all these people dotting the mountain and it's just this like caravan of 
conquistadors and they've like you know they've got all these like natives like carrying like women who they're like carrying their like princesses who've come along for the ride and they're all wearing their giant armor you feel like you're in a weird dream and these 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 images are just they don't like belong together just nothing in this movie looks like it makes any sense and um and it stars um klaus kinski in you know kinski did a lot of famous collaborations with um, with Herzog and and but this is I think got to be at least you know up there I mean if not the best one and Kinski is unbelievable in this movie he's he's just this like hulking beast kind of lurking around he's always standing in a weird off kilter way at an angle eyeing people. Um, and he's just slowly controlling everything in a kind of sly way from the sidelines, uh, bringing everything together to suit his his own purposes. Um, and um, and f- I, yeah, I just think it's I mean, it's like watching. I don't know. It feels like it's the closest I've ever been to like being on a hallucinogen because, you know, there are parts of this movie where things are happening and it just doesn't feel real. But it is a movie where they they shot everything, right? And they just it's just something about the tone. There this the sound this the soundtrack is by this band called Popol V, which I don't I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that right. The soundtrack is incredible. It's so moody and atmospheric. I mean, it just puts you in this like very weird, uneasy headspace. Um, you know, the other thing for me that I like about this movie is that I never want to leave my house ever again and i especially never want to go in a raft down the amazon river uh, and so i get to, get to experience that you know i get to really experience being in that raft and running out of food and you know um meet you know finding meeting some cannibals and it's great <laughs> it's a wild ride okay laura's gonna say it's a wild ride so that's <laughs> that's my pick what's your pick laura uh so my pick tonally is completely different. It um, is the, I think it's a Netflix original. I'm not sure. It is, it is. Okay, great. Thank you. It is the 2014 documentary Mitt about presidential nom- uh, nominee candidate uh, Mitt Romney. So what do you say if we, what do you think you say in a concession speech? Let me read you what I have, what I have here at Susan. Thank you. Uh, to just help President Obama to congratulate him on his victory, his supporters, and his campaign also deserve congratulations. I wish all of them well, particularly the President, the First Lady, and their daughters. This is a time of great challenges for America, and I pray that the President will be successful in guiding the nation. No one's listening. No, I'm <laughs> following, okay. following okay. you. Uh, shall, shall I send it to you this? Do you want me to send it to you? Yeah. Shall I do that? The filmmaker Greg Whitley followed Mitt Romney for six years. Uh, culminating in his ultimate loss against uh, Obama for his second run for president. And um, it's just wholesome AF. We just watched the trailer again to remind ourselves because it had been a while since I'd seen it. Um, And like, I almost cried just watching the trailer. (laughs) Are you kidding me? (laughs) Oh my God. Okay. Um, I, the thing I said when I watched it the first time, which I feel like it came out pretty soon after he he lost that election. Mm. Um, but the thing I said the first time was like, I didn't want him to be my leader. I didn't want him to run my country. Uh, but I kind of want him to be my dad or my <laughs> uncle. <laughs> 
Mitt. Uh, Mitt is such a sweetheart. He's just, he may be totally out of touch. He may be totally disconnected from what's happening in the country, but he is, I think he really is the, like, the sweet family man that he um, you know, tried that sort of that, that character that he tried to convey on on the campaign trail. I think he really is that. And, you know, he's got like a billion kids or whatever, and they're all around him the whole time supporting him earnestly. Um, it's a movie much as about um, the toll that it takes on a person to run for office, to try and be that leader, to have a goal and and a dream and, and sort of drag your whole family along with you. And they're supportive, but it's also, you know, it's taking its toll on everybody. Um, it just makes me feel good in my soul <laughs> um, to see like it's just a really human and apolitical documentary and it feels like a balm right now um, it feels crazy to think that that was the choice that we had back in the day when we were so angry about Mitt Romney's binder full of women and I was you know I was like ugh Mitt Romney get out get out of here uh, and now you know I take him any dang day <laughs> yeah I mean it was four years after the Republicans nominated Mitt Romney that they nominated Donald Trump. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable how fast it's such it a changed and how Mitt Romney has been one of the few Republicans to actually criticize Donald Trump mm-hmm. um, openly. And um, uh, I don't know what this says about, I mean, well, look, there's lots to say about, about exactly how this is happening and everything, but yeah, it is something to go back and just, you know, remember better times in a certain yeah, way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Remember a time where you maybe really adamantly politically disagreed with the with the other candidate, but you didn't think they were evil or or completely incompetent. You know, they say <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, there was it wasn't a doubt in my mind that Mitt Romney was an intelligent, good person. That he had good intentions mm-hmm. and, you know, whatever. Yeah. 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 Uh, and that just feels like a, a really distant dream. Yeah. Um, but I think, you know, I mentioned my love of the Kardashians, uh, in the can't hardly wait episode, but I think it's similar. I think I'm interested in these like big family dynamics. I like, like to see him sort of surrounded by his, by his loving family. That's why Um, we have six kids. (laughs) We go for the big family. That's what we wanted. Um, but I, and I also just think you act it's, it's a kind of like, you know, coverage that you don't really get to see a lot of, um, and I guess I haven't actually read David Foster Wallace's uh, sort of oh the his, one the, the McCain his essay one. on the McCain yeah, yeah. Um, and of course he didn't follow him around for six years no, but yeah. you don't really get this kind of like in depth human yeah. portrait of yeah. a candidate all that often yeah, and I mean the McCain essay is not about McCain really it's about all the apparatus around McCain okay. he doesn't really sit with McCain I mean this Got is it. like he's with Romney pretty much at every juncture like they're like mm-hmm. Romney's going up to the debate. And he's All sitting, the quiet he's like little praying with his family beforehand. before. And, yep. and then he goes out and then he, they're backstage with the family. And then he comes off the stage and he's just like, I didn't think that went well. It's, I mean, it's, yeah. just, it's, if anything, it's like, we expect celebrities to almost like grant us access into their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what this does is you really get to see into this guy's life. And, and, you know, you see him be mad and you see him be happy and you see him struggle with decisions and, I mean, it's something that I don't feel like I would ever want to do, like allow Mm-mm. the public access into my life in this way. Mm-mm. And so it's, it's you know, it, but it is unsettling because you, you don't feel comfortable that like being a fly on the wall in these very personal conversations. And also just like, 
you know, fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you get to see the moment where he knows he's, you get to see him like watching watch the election and lose. knows he's losing and yeah. he's in some anonymous hotel yeah. or whatever, like, you know, so he can go on that stage and like give his concession speech. Yeah. They know it early, right? It was not a close, close election. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you just get to see the sort of like, so he's been working for this for years. Yeah. Through t- a couple of different uh, runs at this, at this, and you get to watch somebody lose their dream. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's, it's crazy. It's a little bit. I mean, it's almost. And to do it with raw. like, so, I mean, it is, but yet like the way he handles it, okay. he just was always sort of like, oh, okay. Bummer. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of engrossing. So that's it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. Uh, you know, we hope you we hope you had some fun, got some good recs. Again, all these things are streaming on Amazon or Netflix, which are the two sort of leading streaming sites. That's we we wanted to keep ourselves to those. The other thing I just point out is like it's a disclaimer. Like these aren't necessarily like our favorite movies, right? These are just like movies that we thought people would have fun with. We tried to come up with some fun categories and see maybe something you overlooked. Perhaps they might have been overlooked, right? Because um, you know, Inception is on Netflix, but we're assuming you've all seen that. Yeah, if you haven't seen Inception, then like, like we don't even know what to say. That's to you. a huge mistake. We, we'll probably do Inception at some point on this podcast, <laughs> just because it's it is like one of my favorite movies, and I feel like Inception there's 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 a thing aspect of it where it 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 almost got a bad rap because it was so popular. And I feel like we need to come back around on it and really evaluate it uh, fresh again. Um, but anyway, that's for another day. Um, <laughs> but actually, before we leave you, we want to actually, we have one, two more bonus, but we've got a bonus for you. And these are not categorized, but. Um, no, I have a category for them. Okay, you put it as a category. Giant bummers. Giant bummers. So we didn't want to bum anyone out with our picks. And I guess the closest maybe we came to bumming people out would be all of my picks. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, all of my picks Everything are except for Clue. pretty much bummers. Um, and Highlander. Well, so something weird has happened uh, in when we were we've been in this pandemic. We've been watching a global disaster, and Justin felt like it was the time to watch Chernobyl, the t- the television miniseries from HBO, and um, it has a lot of resonance <laughs> to what's going on today. Justin loved it. I had a tummy ache the entire time. So I think for maybe some people, some people like to process. Some people like in, you know, times of challenging times to just take on a little bit more challenge. That's right. To add some more challenge to the mix. Yeah. Well, sometimes it gives you some distance from the current thing. You realize like you're like, oh, you know, shit's been happening. At least we're not all dying of radiation poisoning. Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) Like there's been bad stuff for a long time and we're just like another another bad thing. So if this is how you, if that's you, if you like that kind of thing, if you want to, you know, uh, maybe recontextualize what's going on right now with some other bummer stuff. Uh, then we have two bummer recommendations for you that are also really good. Yes, we, these are these are movies we we both enjoy. Um, uh, I want you to go first because if we end on your movie. That is actually the biggest. I think that's you think the, mine's bigger, the biggest bummer. I think yours of all time. Uh, let the viewer, let the audience decide. But I think your movie is the biggest bummer movie. Uh, and this <laughs> is coming from someone who loves bummer movies. I definitely love this movie. But if we cannot end on your movie, okay. So. Wow. Sure. Okay. So my movie is a documentary, another documentary, but very different than Mitt. It's called The Act of Killing. It's directed by Joshua Oppenheimer, and it uh, is from 2012, and it is available on Netflix. Um, so the premise of this documentary is that there were, uh, in Indonesia, mass genocides in the 70s? No, 60s. Thank you. <laughs> 
get my like history right here, in the 60s. And um, the perpetrators of that genocide have now been have been in power since then. And Joshua Oppenheimer went in to talk to those leaders who are now old men about their experience uh, in the, you know, perpetrating this genocide and actually gets them to reenact the killings, uh, which they do with a lot of gusto and zeal, um, because it's a really strange, um, strange, it's sort of like watching, you know, if like, if Nazis were yeah. alive and well today and old men yeah. and their, their history had been, had, had been written by the victors, the perpetrators of the massive genocide had stayed in power. These memories had become faint. They'd become normalized. They become aggrandized even Mm -hmm. it's just like a part of the life that they like like to reminisce about um atrocities Mm -hmm. and it's it's really surreal to watch uh it's also really human and poignant he um he actually gets these these people over the course of the movie to actually reconsider their acts. Okay, so well, well there's one character. One who, character. Who, yes. So there's a he, he follows a bunch of these people, but but he quickly becomes clear, I think, to, to Oppenheimer that one guy is is his protagonist. Yeah, is the protagonist of this say. film, which yeah. is his name is Anwar Congo, and he actually has a certain depth of emotion and resonance of. Um, perhaps guilt and remorse that's buried and Oppenheimer sort of notices this. And so he's, he, sort of, he's the one who like reenacts with the most zeal in the beginning, beginning. But then as yeah. it goes on, he starts to break and mm-hmm. he starts to like begin to his body actually begins to revolt against his mind as he's attempting to process this. And it is the most disturbing thing I have ever seen just watching someone at war with themselves trying mm-hmm. to process an intense amount of guilt um it's it, there are scenes in this movie that will never leave my mind wow. i can't shake them they're they're burned into my soul um and it, it and it is all about the processing of guilt mm-hmm. um and what it does to you both mentally but also physically and how you know you you may never be able to process it and how you will just be left with this guilt it really made the case to me that a lifetime of that guilt is worse than almost any amount of punishment it's mm-hmm. just overwhelming it's just so much and by the end of the movie you know congo has he's on that path really of maybe he can come to terms with it but he is he's definitely on a path of like recognizing that he has done horrible things and um but watching that happen effectively in real time like you literally watch anwar congo go from like haha this is so much fun to by the end of the movie like you know being a wreck of a human being is i mean it's it's like earth shattering that's one of the reasons why i think we cannot end on this movie because it is just like such a downer and i will say this is coming from someone who loved Chernobyl. And actually, like, I would tell Laura every time we'd watch it, I'd be like, I want to just live in 1986 Chernobyl. Like, I just want to go back what there and be in that. It just seems so cool. But, like, this movie, <laughs> I cannot even handle. I can't. I cannot bring myself to rewatch this movie. It's, like, beyond anything. I, I yeah. It's a really remarkable movie. It's incredible. It's like yeah. one of the, it's the be, yeah. it, it probably is the best documentary ever made. And I'm talking like, you know, even compared to great documentaries, Thin Blue Line, everything. Isn't but it like, true? It got passed over in the Oscars the year that they had like the, yeah, the it movement was, about background dancing. Yeah, it was the background singer one that won. I mean, that's whatever, so frustrating. Whatever. It, 
who cares? The Oscars <laughs> are a joke. This movie is it's one of the best documentaries ever, and it it, it is, but it is also at the same time like it's a toughie. In, incredibly difficult to watch. Yeah, um, no, it's not a rewatchable movie. So I think a lot of the movies that we picked are really sure, rewatchable. Yeah, yeah. yeah they're um, super fun. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. this one is this one maybe is like a once a lifetime. I mean, or you could be like me for Chernobyl for this movie, right? Maybe this is like your <laughs> your so, like, your bomb. Again. You're just like keep it rolling. Yeah. Uh, okay, so to end, though, we want to just end. This is just all bonus stuff. You know, we threw it in there for fun. Um, I had one more movie which I wanted to recommend, which was um, this movie I um, I watched a lot as a kid. It just happened to always be on TV. It was on, like, IFC all the time, and I was just, like, I just, like, tune in periodically. And That's crazy. Just I've kind seen of, like, this movie once. Yeah, it just, it's, well, it's really short. That's the other thing. It's 84 minutes, and um, so I should say what the movie is. It's Pie <laughs> by Darren Aronofsky. It's his first movie, and... Um, it's, uh, it's a movie about like this mathematician who sort of discovers like some secret in number theory that like he thinks may or may not be the, the true name of God and also the key to like solving and predicting the stock market and have all these like ramifications for explaining the universe. And, um, then he, you know, he gets like all these different people want it obviously, and they come after him and he's sort of pursued by nefarious figures. Um, there's a scene where um, he discovers a brain on the steps of a subway and it's like crawling with ants and he sticks a pencil in it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just wonderful imagery in this movie. Oh, and there's a scene where um, he drills his skull open. So there's that. Yeah, I think that's why I had been thinking of it as a bummer. <laughs> Um, although I weirdly, I had migraines, uh, and I had, when I, when we watched this movie, I was like right in the middle of like trying to figure out what was going on with my migraines. And it's weird because I've had that exact thought when you have a certain kind of like tension in your head, like you feel like if you could just drill into it, it would help weirdly. Mm-hmm. I don't know if Anonofsky's ever had migraines, but I suspect yes. Yeah. The character <laughs> suffers from migraines as yeah. this Num- he's discovered this magical number or whatever and it's like eating into his brain but he keeps thinking there's something in his head he keeps seeing something in his head yep. like in his in the mirror he's like what is that thing on my a little bit of body horror yeah there's some body horror hey it's, it's a fun you know it's it's a fun one but it's also um you know kind of a kind of a d- downer movie i suppose it's not as bad as what Graham for a dream yeah, that's the yeah exactly. We're not recommending you watch Requiem for a Dream. We're you know this is this is this one's fun. Um, okay, yeah. so mine's a real bummer then. The kill, act of killing is an extreme bummer, but Pi you know Pi has there's lots of moments you know like he does those quick snap sh- cuts where he's taking pills and stuff. And yeah, it's like fun. Like it's like it's kinetic and you know he there's all these great shots of uh, of Manhattan um, meeting up with Hasidic Jews and. You know, then getting captured by them and doing Kabbalah and stuff. It's wild. This is a fun, I don't know. I think it's a fun movie. It's got a killer soundtrack by Aphex Twin. Mm-hmm. So um, it's another plus if you're into electronic music. Um, so that there you have it. Some recommendations. Hopefully some of these will, you know, you'll enjoy them. And maybe that'll, you know, if you're looking for something to do during the quarantine, um, stay inside, stay, stay safe. Uh, these are all really fun and they're all streaming. Um, if you enjoy this and you know you have other requests or whatever, you can find us on Twitter at Cows Pod Twitter. First social media plug. Yeah, and uh, we've got zero followers. <laughs> <laughs> 
literally, I mean, we have one. It's me, but I follow myself. Should I get on Twitter just to follow nope. us? No, nope. okay. you can take you can take over Cal's Pod if you want. No, thank you. Okay, join us on Cal's Pod. Uh, rate, review, subscribe, and uh, we'll see you next time. Happy quarantine. abandon this project, I would be a man without dreams. It's not only my dreams. My belief is that all these dreams are, are yours as well. And the only distinction between me and you is that I can articulate them. <laughs> <laughs>